Hi, this is Melissa Pacey of HGA Architects and Engineers, and I'm also on the Leadership Council for the Northern California Cornet. I'm here today with Julia Campbell to introduce our February chapter meeting. Hi, Julia. Hi. Um, so I'm a principal at Gensler. I'm also the co-chair of the programs committee with, along with Barry Toner. And we're very excited about this program as it's the second in a series where we had um, Ken Rosen on in January uh, giving his uh, kind of overview of the economic forecast. And so this was really bringing together a number of different policy makers and um, people who could really talk to some of the issues that would affect the real estate community um, from a policy standpoint together, uh, given kind of where we are in our economic cycle. That's fantastic. How did you decide on the individual panelists and speakers for this chapter meeting? Well, one of the first things was to find uh, the perfect moderator. And we thought of Scott Schaefer, who's the host for the California Report, uh, KQED. And he's uh, always really uh, involved in the kind of the up to the minute um, issues that are affecting California and is a great public speaker. And so we wanted to invite him as our uh, key moderator so that he could kind of steer the conversation with the various panelists. He did a fantastic job keeping everything on track with all the political issues yeah. back and forth. Yeah, he's amazing. So. And then as far as the other, the content speakers, um, obviously those are people that you may have had some contact with in mm -hmm. the past. How did you kind of curate that? So uh, we started with um, Scott Weiner, who is the, uh, the current uh, senator. And um, we thought that because he had a real passion around housing and we were thinking about the fact that real estate executives are having to get into other businesses apart from you know bricks and mortar and building out campuses that you know when you think of companies such as Google building out actual um, housing for their employees uh, we thought that Scott would be a great uh, person to speak on some of the housing issues that are also then affecting real estate so, uh, so we started there, and then we ha um, included um, Matt Reagan from Bay Area Council, and Barry had a connection there. And he was just a wealth of data and information, and you know had all the all the information at his fingertips. So that was really helpful to kind of get his perspective. Uh, the the other speakers were uh, we had. Um, uh, Greg Dalton from Climate One. Um, so the last speaker was Ted Egan, who's the uh, chief economist for the city of San Francisco. And again, you know, different viewpoint, but I think what Scott did was he brought out everyone's real passions about what they're interested in and, and weaving um, the stories together as to how they interacted with each other. I believe that the, this uh, podcast will really bring um, a lot of great information to our listeners and I'm really excited about you know, our listeners being able to have access to these great minds and, and great opinions. Julia, we're really excited to have you on the Leadership Council and planning our programs as Julia planned this February chapter meeting. and. As you all hear, it's a really exciting, lively debate that's very relevant to the future of the Bay Area. I thought it was really great that the January meeting had more of a global feel to it, looking at the broader uh, economic forecast and how it would um, possibly be affected by the administration. 
and that the February meeting really drilled down more to the Bay Area and how the particulars of our region might be affected. Right. Yes, and I think that the uh, all the speakers, because they were talking about different issues such as housing, transportation, climate change, and the, the economic uh, impacts, I think it was really helpful to get those different you know, viewpoints, um, particularly in the new uh, political climate and you know, with the changes in policies that are really impacting um, our corporate real estate executives. Listeners, if you have not heard the January chapter meeting podcast with Ken Rosen, I would go back and listen to that first, as that um, is the first in this series. Happy listening. So welcome, everybody, to the February meeting of the Northern California chapter of Cornet. For those that don't know me, I'm Mike Bangs. I'm the president of the chapter this year. Um, this is not a press conference, and there will be no fake news today. <laughs> so you saw the title of this as the potential impact of public policy and changes in the new administration. I'm going to turn this over to Julia Campbell from Gensler to make the introductions. Thank you for coming. Afterwards, our reception is going to be here, right in this room. Okay, thank you so much. So we had a fantastic um, program last, last uh, uh, month, and this is the second in the two-part series. The title, The Potential Impact of Public Policy Changes Under the New Administration, and we're very excited to have um, a fantastic panel. Um, obviously, following the economic forecast with Ken Rosen last, uh, last time, I think the potential policy um, changes at the national, state, and local levels is really something that we want to hear more about. So I'm going to introduce um, Scott Schaefer, who is our moderator, who is going to have a conversation with Scott Wiener, State, state Senator Scott Wiener. And um, Scott Schaefer is the senior editor of the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED. And as Holly Kernan, the executive editor of KQED, met, said, which I think is a great quote, she said, he approaches politics in a way that goes beyond horse race coverage and helps us understand how policy impacts the lives of real people. There's no one better to lead KQED's expanded political coverage of California. So we're very fortunate to have um, both these Scots with us today. And then following that, we will have um, a panel discussion with uh, Matt Reagan from the Bay Area Council, Ted Egan, who is the um, senior economist at the uh, San Francisco City, and Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. So with that, um, I'd like to in, um, invite the Scott Wiener and Scott Schaefer up to the stage, and I'll let them take it from there. All right, Julia, thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to, I think I want to ask you about the could and what it means. <laughs> kind of got me thinking. 
Um, this man, really, I think you know him pretty well. Uh, he's the freshman state senator for District 11, which includes San Francisco and a little bit of San Mateo County. Uh, he earned a reputation uh, on the Board of Supervisors, I think it's fair to say, as a serious policy guy with a lot of ideas, uh, including some that uh, a lot of folks really didn't want to take on, like the nude guys in the Castro, for example. He hates that, I'm sure. Uh, but more serious things, too, like transportation and housing, things that, are, uh, that require a lot of uh, uh, thinking and work and aren't necessarily always, you know, really exciting uh, topics for a lot of people. So please welcome Scott Wiener. Uh, so you've uh, you've been a senator for all of what? How many weeks? Four? Uh, about two months. Oh, two. Oh, that's right. Because they 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 swore you in and then they went on recess for a while, right? So you've been working for since uh, early January. <laughs> The life of a politician. Uh, but I'm curious, uh, you know, so you were one of 11 on the Board of uh, Supervisors, and now you're one of uh, 40 up in Sacramento. Uh, talk about the differences, not just in numbers, but uh, the, the, the sort of the environment up there, the political environment. Sure. It's actually more uh, one out of 120 because it's 40 state senators and then 80 members of the assembly. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's very uh, different. It was, uh, it was amazing to be uh, on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and to represent a district of 75,000 people and be able to work in a really tangible way every day on, um, on, on projects uh, with members of the community, whether it's a park renovation or uh, a street uh, improvement, um, or working on legislation for uh, the city and working with my 10 colleagues and the mayor. Uh, it was uh, tremendous. Uh, this is definitely a big uh, change, now representing a, a million people. Um, and uh, making policy for the sixth largest economy uh, in the world, uh, particularly at this moment in time, uh, and uh, having to navigate what is a dramatically more complex uh, ecosystem. I mean, San Francisco is very complicated in its own ways in terms of the politics, uh, but uh, up in Sacramento, where you uh, every bill has to go through multiple committees in two houses, and there it can be killed in many, many different ways, where you are having to work with um, Republicans, you're having to work with. Uh, uh, Did you met any of those? Yeah, I have. I have people from the Central Valley and from the Inland Empire in Orange County, and uh, it's just uh, a, a very diverse environment, but it's pretty amazing. Well, and it's not just Republicans. There's the growth now of what they call the Mod, Mod Caucus, moderate Democrats, who in some ways have taken the place of Republicans in that Democrats have a supermajority now in both houses of the legislature, but the moderate Democrats, are, they tend to be more business friendly, for example. How, how, what's your sense of how that's, you know, the impact of that on issues that you care about, that these folks care about? Yeah, and it's fascinating. So San Francisco is very confusing to the rest of the state. They don't understand our politics, and uh, they, uh, you know, Mark Leno was, uh, when he was elected to the state assembly in 2002, was, was the moderate, and he ended up being probably the most progressive member of the of the legislature and uh, you know I came up there they spent a lot of money saying that I was really a, re a closet Republican and 
and they, you know, that's you're talking about your opponent, yes, the Democratic yes, opponent, yeah. my Democratic <laughs> opponent, uh, and a corporate Democrat, and just you know, saying anything they could. And I go up there now, and you know, I'm one of the most liberal members of the uh, of the state senate, and so it's uh, we have our own little uh, teeny uh, ecosystem here. But uh, it is a very we have a two thirds majority in both houses, um, but particularly in the assembly, uh, it's diverse in both houses, but particularly in the assembly there is a, a set of uh, assembly Democrats who are uh, who are truly moderate uh, Democrats not a criticism it's just you know there are a lot of moderate Democrats in the world uh, and so we have um, we can't always count on that two-thirds so for example we have a major transportation infrastructure funding package moving through the legislature six billion dollars a year for roads and public transportation uh, we have to get the two-thirds in both houses uh, and in the assembly it's a struggle and how does it how does that because I think there's an assumption that you might get one or two Republican votes uh, because it's going to require a tax increase. Uh, maybe one or two of the termed out Republicans might vote for it. Uh, but you, as you said, you have to get a few Democrats, perhaps. Um, how, do, how do they look at issues like you know, roads versus public transit, for example? Uh, well, uh you know, there, there are Democrats, we've, been, uh, we've done well in the last few cycles, particularly this past cycle, because there was such a surge uh, in turnout because of the presidential, uh, particularly among Latino uh, voters, understandably. Uh, and so there are a number of Democrats who were elected in districts the last couple cycles that are challenging districts. Uh, they might be barely majority, or you know, Democrats have a bare edge, or maybe don't have an edge at all. And so those Democrats are, you know, constantly have to, you know, look at, you know, the district, and and they're in, especially in the assembly, every two years, there's no breathing room. So uh, they, when you ask them to vote to increase the gas tax which is what we're doing. California has a broken gas tax, and they uh, they struggle with that. And, and what you're looking at, how much? 15 cent increase uh, or what? Yeah, probably a 12, 12 cent increase, uh, in addition to an increase in the vehicle registration uh, fee. And the, the package right now, um, and this has been something that I've been vocal about, as have a number of other members, uh, it, it is very focused on road investment, which I fully support. I did a lot of work in San Francisco to increase investment in our roads, but it doesn't have very much money for public transportation. What's the split, like roughly? Uh, right now, it's about 10% uh, or 12% for public transportation, uh, and um, uh, the lion's share for roads, uh, and then a chunk of money for so-called uh, goods movement, helping with uh, basically the movement of goods. Uh, trucking in particular, work around port, ports, particularly around Oakland, Southern California, uh, and but it's largely roads. What would you like to see the mix be? Uh, I, I would huh, realistically, what, real, I would like to see it be a bigger package. We have and and put a bunch more money into transit. I'm not looking to take money away uh, from roads. We have massive roads. Our state highway system is in really bad shape. So I don't want to take away. I want to add. Uh, and when you look at the magnitude of our trans transportation capital needs, um, you know, talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in the in the coming years, uh, the, it's a six billion dollar package. It actually, when it was initially proposed a couple of years ago, it was I think two or two and a half times that. And it keeps getting shrunk down because they can't get to two thirds, uh, and so I would like to see uh, that number, the amount, the package increased with 
more money going to, to transit. I mean, if you look at just uh, look at what Congress, you know, Congress, you know, broken Congress, uh, which can't, you know, put its socks on in the morning. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, they, and the federal, the federal gas tax, which is broken as well, there's an 80-20 split, 80% to roads, 20% to transit. So that to me is like a baseline. So what's your argument to rural Democrats or moderate Democrats in, you know, uh, more suburban districts or even Los Angeles? I mean, what's your argument to them? What's your best argument for more money for public transit? Uh, well, I think there's a stereotype that the only communities that rely on transit are, you know, like San Francisco and Oakland and uh, and just a few areas. Uh, but people rely on transit in a lot of parts of the state. You have Los Angeles, which is actually doing a lot of great work to expand their transit system. They're building new subway lines. They, they're taxing themselves locally uh, to try to, you know, have a better system because if you try to get around in L.A., it's rough. Uh, it makes it look like child's play in the Bay Area. Um, but there are other parts of the state where I have colleagues in the Central Valley who talk about wanting better transit. They want the ACE train to be better and to be more connected uh, to other systems. Uh, and you have a lot of, it's sort of like the areas where you have Republicans trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act when half of their constituents uh, rely on either Medi-Cal or the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you have a lot of people in these areas that don't, aren't considered transit areas, low-income people who rely on bus service. Uh, and so, uh, and then you have people who say, I don't have much transit in my district, but I really want better transit in my district because the traffic is so bad. So there is a potential in terms of growing that coalition. How does the, how, you know, Sacramento, of course, there are a lot of very powerful interests. Uh, some of them are well known, like labor or law enforcement. But on, on this issue of transportation or, or even housing, like, who are the big players? Uh, and I'm sure labor is as well because they get jobs out of this. But, you know, who else? Uh, who, you know, who, who really has an impact? Sure. So the coalition for this package um, is a combination of uh, cities and counties. So the League of Cities and the California State Association of Counties are, are key players because they, you know, they, they maintain the roads. Um, the uh, uh, the contractors are key. The the, the contractors who actually uh, get the work, uh, they are key players. And then labor is uh, are, are are key players. And then you have uh, and you have some tension because then you have the envir environmentalists, transit advocates bike advocates, pedestrian advocates, people who want more money for these other really critically important needs. Uh, and uh, you end up having a weird situation. So we we voted the this package out of the, I serve on the Transportation and Housing Committee, and we voted it out of committee uh, two, two days ago. Uh, and at our hearing, uh, the supporters were that coalition that I just mentioned. And then when they had the opposition speakers, they were, uh, it was really just bizarre. Uh, it's the oil industry, who they say they're not opposed, but they are. Uh, the oil industry. What's is their? I mean, what, why are they really opposed? Uh, they don't like any taxes on uh, gasoline. They just don't. They don't believe in it. And even though the federal gas tax is, in real terms, worth half of what it was in 1993, and you know, it's an irrational argument, but they're just against it. Uh, oil industry, uh, the Howard Jarvis Association, um, they're still around and still fighting every form of taxes, uh, and the Sierra Club. 
uh, and some bike and pedestrian groups. They were all there together, uh, objecting to the package for different reasons. Uh, the, the environmentalists and the bike and pedestrian folks were saying there needs to be more money for these other important needs. The highway drivers people just said, you know, we want to kill off government. Uh, and the oil industry said, just don't tax any of our products, even though we're, uh, we're dragging the whole world down with climate change. So it seems like there are some big groups on the sidelines, unless maybe they, you just didn't mention them. But I'm thinking like just the Chamber of Commerce, for example. Um, is, is that a job killer? Uh, or do the they chamber, support no, it? The Chamber of Commerce has not come out against uh, this bill. And a lot of business groups supporting it though I don't you know I, I'm sorry I shouldn't I don't know if the California Chamber of Commerce is supporting it there are definitely local chambers uh, that are and I don't think the Chamber of Commerce is in any way I, and I if they haven't supported it I imagine they're probably quietly supportive but I don't want to speak for them uh, but there are a lot of business groups like the Bay Area Council and uh, Silicon Valley Leadership Group the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce other local chambers that are there's a statewide coalition of uh, chambers and and other organizations that are like uh, business sort of oriented groups uh, that uh, are very, very good on these issues on progressive housing and transportation policy. What about uh, the California Farm Bureau or ag? I mean, you think that rural areas depend a lot on roads. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that ag is really involved uh, in this. If they've, in, if they've endorsed it, they're not, they haven't really gotten uh, involved. But there is a lot of support in the Central Valley for, uh, for road investment. Uh, we know that uh, one of the governor's pet projects is high-speed rail. It's made that a priority. Uh, it's going to be a big fight, uh, an ongoing fight, really. But uh, he uses a lot of the cap-and-trade money for that. How, do, how does that play into the whole, the big-picture discussion around transportation, if at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it makes me sad that high-speed rail has become this, like, political football and punching bag. Uh, because if you think about it, just going back to basics, it is, it is unbelievably embarrassing that California, being who we are, that we don't actually have a functioning statewide rail system. And, I, and with all respect to Amtrak, I love Amtrak, it doesn't count. When, when it takes you 11 hours on a good day to get from San Francisco to LA, on a, that's on a good day if, if Union Pacific doesn't need to use the tracks. Um, it, it, that's, it is embarrassing. Uh, and uh, you know, w w no, we're not Europe. We don't have the consistent density of Europe. But the, the, the fact that you can't take a train across the state is, is just absurd. And so we should have had high-speed rail or some version of it a long time ago. And it, sh it is a no-brainer that we should have high-speed rail. Um, our airports are running out of space. We can't keep expanding. We're going to get to the point where the international and long-haul flights are going to start crowding out the interstate flights, because there's just not enough flight slots. We can't, you know, the, the freeways are clogged, we can't keep making them wider, it doesn't work, and it's unbelievably expensive to do that. Just, we need to build the damn train, and just get it going, and, and, and be done with it. So, um, and I, I don't agree with Governor Brown on, on everything, but I have enormous respect for his tenacity. Um, it's better when you're on his side than when you're not on his side. Uh, and I give him a lot of credit that if it weren't for Jerry Brown, this project would have been dead a long time ago. And I just hope that by the time he leaves office in January 2019, that the horse is so far out of the barn that there's no going back. Yeah. I know you, uh, we have to let you go in a few minutes, but we, we've got to talk about housing. And I know that's been a passion of yours. Last year, before you got 
got there. Uh, the governor put $400 million on the table for affordable housing, not as much as David Chu wanted, but you know, a nice chunk of change, and said you can use it if you can all agree on some reforms in the permitting process, including CEQA. Uh, they couldn't get it done. Uh, has the mood up there, have the dynamics changed at all on this issue? I mean, it was really labor and env the environmentalists for different reasons who opposed it, right? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I give the governor uh, enormous credit for calling the question on this issue and for helping to really a, elevate housing as a statewide issue because we are past the time period where we could have you know, sort of these siloed city by city views. It is a statewide issue. Although I would guess that Assemblyman Chu would disagree with that in the sense that I think he'd like to see a lot more money. I think he wanted a billion dollars. So. Oh, you know, I, well, I'm talking about the governor's uh, desire to tie, oh, to tie funding to streamlining. So what the governor said, and, and, and Governor Brown, I don't agree with him on this because I think that investing in uh, subsidized affordable housing, particularly for low-income people, is critically important because the market is not going to produce housing that's affordable uh, to low-income people uh, in, most, in many parts of the state. Uh, and so the, the governor, he doesn't really, he's not a big fan of subsidized housing and he's just, he has his perspective on it and he raises some critiques which are valid, but I think in the end it's important to do it. But what the governor said, and I agree with him, is that you can't, we're not going to spend our way out of this mess. We, the, in terms of subsidies for housing, we don't have even in the universe of the amount of money we would need to subsidize our way out of the housing crisis. And particularly when you talk about the middle class, the idea that through housing subsidies, we would solve our middle class housing problem. If anyone who argues that, I have a bridge to sell you. Um, so we need to have investments in subsidized housing, and I fully, fully support that, but it is not enough and it won't solve it by itself. And so what the governor says, what I believe, is that in addition, we have to produce more housing overall. It is too hard to produce housing uh, in this state. Uh, it is often impossible. Uh, we have local communities that are making it, uh, including some in the Bay Area, um, difficult or impossible to build any housing or just de minimis housing. And when you look at the growth, the Bay Area has grown by millions of people, California by about 15 million people in the last few decades. We're gonna to continue to grow, and if we don't produce enough housing, it's going to be even worse than it is today. So the governor has made clear that for him to sign any bills that allocate money to invest in affordable housing, and there are several bills pending now which I support, um, he wants reform. Uh, he proposed a reform last year to streamline approval. It got just obliterated for, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I have proposed a bill, uh, SB 35, uh, that is a modified version of what he proposes. We're working with labor, with the environmental community, uh, with, a with the housing community, just trying to build support. And you know, you never know what's gonna happen in the legislature, but we're, we're getting some good support for it. Uh, and it's my hope that, uh, that this bill can travel with some funding bills together to the governor and that he'll sign all of them. So is that the bill you just, you're, we were talking about earlier that will require communities to sort of live up to their, yeah. their goals for affordable housing construction? Yeah, so right now, every community in California under something called the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, RENA, every eight years gets a number. 
uh, and it's done at a regional level and then through the state. So San Francisco's number that was set um, about, I think, three years ago, or no, in 2015, that over a 25-year period, 2015 to 2040, San Francisco is expected to produce, or is supposed to produce 90,000 units of housing. It's also broken down, which we're overall on track to do, but it's also broken down by income level, about low income, very low income, moderate income, uh, above moderate income. Uh, we are uh, doing well with above moderate income, but we're doing okay with low income, but, but not where we need to be, horribly on moderate income, and pretty poorly on very low income, which is formerly homeless people, people on, on disability. Uh, and so we all get these numbers, and then it collects dust on a bookshelf. There's no ramifications if you just blow it off, and we have some communities, like some to our south and some to our north, who just ignore it. And so my bill, SB 35, basically says that if you are meeting your arena goals, if you're on track to meet them, you're good to go. If you are not meeting your arena goals, then streamlining will kick in. Uh, and to, to me, and I believe in local control on many issues, including the, how your town or city is going to be, but local control is about how you meet your housing goals, not whether you meet them. Because what happens in Brisbane and in Palo Alto and in Mountain View and in San Rafael and all, it impacts everyone. We're not living in isolation chambers. Uh, and it's not enough to say, you know, we're not going to build it, we'll just have San Francisco or Oakland build it. Is a little off the topic, but don't. And, and I know you have to go. Uh, but uh, you know the, the Google buses. Just to, I know that it's not just Google, but uh, doesn't that relieve the pressure off communities like Palo Alto or Brisbane, because folks can just live here, and that's where they want to live anyway. Well, I, I don't agree with that. And but first of all, that argument, uh, and I went through all the wars on the Google buses. Um, that argument is an argument against public transportation, because the same argument could be made if we were to say, we're going to turn Caltrain into a 21st century, amazing, highly connected, interconnected train system, so you can get up and down all around the peninsula and between the peninsula and San Francisco easily. That would be the same argument. Isn't that going to just relieve you know, the South Bay communities of their obligation to build housing? Um, so there are a lot of the arguments that we hear about the, against the tech buses in terms of gentrification, housing costs, are arguments against public transportation. And there are people who will take it to the next step and say, we don't want transit improvements because it makes it easier for people to live here and uh, leads to gentrification. Uh, now, uh, now, in terms of um, uh, in terms of the uh, you know the people riding those buses, the surveys show over and over again that if the buses went away, they would still live in San Francisco. Because if you are taking a bus, a, a tech bus every day between San Francisco and say Mountain View, you're spending minimum you know two and a half hours on a bus, maybe three hours or more every day. If you're doing that, I don't care how nice the bus is, if you're doing that, you are committed to living in San Francisco and you've made a choice that you're gonna take a big chunk of your day every day to commute. So these people wanna live here uh, and we just need to make sure that both us and Mountain View and Palo Alto and Cupertino, that we're all creating enough housing. Uh, last question. Uh what would it what would it take in terms of changing the dynamics up in Sacramento or anything else to really 
uh, you know, to, make, to get some real progress on these issues? Uh, you know, sometimes it takes a breaking point. And, uh, you know, I think a few years ago, there were very few members of the legislature who were working on housing. Uh, and it was really hard to get traction on anything significant around housing. Uh, and fast forward just a few years, this housing crisis is not just San Francisco and the Bay Area. It is everywhere. I was on a panel uh, in Sacramento with a, uh, a very, very conservative Republican from eastern San Diego County, so way inland. And even before I could say a word about housing, he was just going on about the cost of housing in his community, which is like a suburban, somewhat rural area. So this is eastern, eastern, eastern San Diego County. Um, you know, and so this, you know, there are more of my colleagues who just are talking about this issue that their constituents are struggling, and that has given momentum to this work. Uh, with transportation, it has been a frustrating few years, but there is more and more momentum to do something because it's a statewide issue, and I'll say in that I've introduced a constitutional amendment the other day right now to do a transportation, to do a dedicated uh, funding measure for transportation, uh, it takes two-thirds vote. Uh, we have seen around the state, San Diego, Sacramento, Placer County, Contra Costa County, that these measures will get 60, 62, 66 and a half percent of the vote and they fail. Uh, and so the, this measure will reduce that threshold for transportation funding to 55 percent. All right, well Scott, thanks very much for coming in. Appreciate it very much, good luck. All right, uh, we're going to expand the panel now with uh, Ted Egan, Greg Dalton, and Matt Regan. Greg, nice to see you. And uh, your mic is right behind you there. I think you know these gentlemen uh, pretty well. Just real quickly, Matt Regan is uh, Senior Vice President of Public Policy for the Bay Area Council. Uh, Ted Egan is San Francisco's uh, Chief Economist, has been since 2007, seen a few ups and downs in the economy. And Greg Dalton founded Climate One at the uh, Commonwealth Club, also in 2007, uh, brings attention to the impact uh, of global warming and on long-range uh, planning and uh, is also a journalist, former, former journalist with AP, the uh, uh, South China Morning News, is that correct? Yeah, all that. So welcome, gentlemen. So I want to just ask, uh, we didn't get into uh, the economy with Senator Weiner, so let me just start with you, uh, if I could, Ted. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you see out there? I mean, in some ways, uh, the economy is super low. I mean, and, uh, people are doing well, but, you know, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses? And I'm talking about the Bay Area now. Yeah, I mean, for the Bay Area, and for San Francisco in particular, and I'll, I'll talk about the Bay Area, but I work for the city, and I, I kind of have a city, you know, focus for a lot of my work. San Francisco's never had a decade like this economically. Uh, we've been adding jobs, 25,000 new jobs a year for the past five years. That's 50% more job growth than during the dot-com boom, which everybody said was an anomaly that could never happen again. Uh, and you know, basically happened again 10 years later. Um, we can all see the kind of straining impact on our infrastructure of that level of growth, uh, but it's, it's really been strong. It's the fastest period in our history, and we're the fastest growing major city of any large city in the United States. I think the only kind of downside of it is that we have become a less diverse economy, and we really have one industry that's driving it. And it is historically, I'm talking about the information technology industry, it is historically a pretty volatile industry with big ups and downs. 
and how is the, uh, now it's on the upside, and so obviously there are issues of affordability, it's driving the cost of things up, right? Sure, I mean, there's a, <clears throat> a structural imbalance that's been in the Bay Area for a long time between supply and demand for housing. Uh, and it's also true for, for other kinds of real estate and infrastructure. Uh, in many ways, we planned to be a region that wasn't gonna grow very much after the 1970s, and look what happened. We're, we're the most dynamic regional economy in the world. Uh, and so the consequence of that is really rising housing prices. That puts a pinch on a lot of industries that would like to expand in the Bay Area but just can't afford the wages and that also kind of contributes to the, the hyper-concentration of tech that we have here. Matt, what would you say, I mean, you know, San Francisco, the Bay Area, especially San Francisco, but you know, California in general, and even more so San Francisco, is highly regulated and highly taxed. People complain, businesses complain all the time about how much it, how much it costs to do business here. And yet, you know, as we just heard Ted say, things are booming. How do you, how do you reconcile those things? Yeah, it's, a, it's really a tale of two economies, as, te as Ted uh, pointed out. Um, companies that have you know, very thick margins, uh, the tech companies Ted mentioned, can absorb the costs of, of the uh, regulations imposed upon them by either cities or the state. Um, and it's, you know, it, it is not a secret that California is a very highly regulated place to do business, um, and San Francisco probably even more so. Um, so the, the, the companies with those margins can, can stay and they can afford to, to, to pass that on and and um, and still be profitable. The companies that can't afford that type of uh, uh, of regulation, um, Jamba Juice, for example, a Bay Area born and bred company in Emeryville, uh, shut the doors last year and moved to Texas, uh, I think Austin. And as they left, their CEO said, I, I just can't afford to pay my people what is required to, to make rent in the Bay Area. We have to leave. And so that was kind of a canary in a coal mine for, um, well, there were several other dead canaries on the floor of the coal mine before Jamba Juice left, but um, we, uh, we've seen a, a... Sounds like a Monty Python skit <laughs> or something. We've seen a hollowing out of the middle income type jobs, in, particularly here in the Bay Area, um, over a, a number of years. Um, you know, Intel, for example, used to manufacture all of their chips in the South Bay, and I think the, the Intel factory, the plant in, in, uh, in Sunnyvale is now a second harvest food bank. The irony of that is not lost on anyone here. Um, they now manufacture most of their chips in Southern Oregon, which by any stretch of the imagination is not an under-regulated or, or, or you know, very business-friendly state. So if we can't compete with Oregon, we're in, we're in a little bit of trouble. Um, and it's starting to bleed up into the high-tech sector as well. Just this week, um, a, a financial technology company called Zero, which is one of the fastest growing fintech companies, uh, left San Francisco for Denver saying the same thing. It's just, it's not possible for us to attract the type of talent that we need uh, to keep this company growing because there's nowhere for our people to live. Um, we've simply, uh, we, we, can't, we can't attract people to come and live here. And we see it um, most markedly in um, uh, the goose that lays the golden egg, our, our uh, higher education system. Um, Janet Napolitano, the president of UCSF, has complained to us many times, or rather UC, and Sam Hoggood, the president of UCSF, both have complained to us that they cannot get the top PhD candidates, the top research candidates, the top uh, faculty and, and student candidates to come here because it's just too expensive. They're going elsewhere. So that's really, the, certainly for us, that's the, that's the, the warning signals that this uh, on-fire economy might be headed towards a cliff. And Greg, uh, you care a lot about green energy and renewable energy, conservation, climate change, of course. Uh, where do you see all of those things fitting into the economy? Because 
those are growth industries too, aren't they? We've benefited from cheap energy the last few years. There's been a glut and oversupply of oil thanks to uh, the fracking boom and some politics in OPEC. Uh, so energy prices have been low lately. That's made it a little bit challenging for uh, competing green energy uh, to, to beat that oil price that's been so low. <clears throat> Excuse me, when oil prices were, were you know, tick, uh, tickling $5 a gallon, it's a little easier to think about, oh, that electric car or biofuels were more vibrant then. Uh, but there's a lot of innovation happening here in the Bay Area. There's a company called Fulcrum Bioenergy that takes uh, food scraps in Sacramento, sends them to Nevada for processing, comes back to SFO, and it flies United Airplanes uh, uh, jet fuel. Uh, so there's you know not a lot of jobs there yet, but there's a lot of innovation happening. There's a whole ecosystem uh, happening around Tesla, right? They're ramping up production, not as much as they say they are, uh, but there's a whole ecosystem around Tesla. There are people who are made enough money at Tesla now that they've 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 left Tesla, going to start electronic, uh, you know, super bike, e-bike companies. There's sort of a second new generation of innovators coming out of Tesla. Uh, so there's ecosystems developing that are creating real jobs. And out of the economic uh, the crash, the Great Recession, those clean energy jobs have been growing, while jobs in coal, fossil fuel extraction, those are shrinking industries. And what about uh, climate change and its impact on the economy? I mean, we, you know, we had a drought, now we have floods. Uh, we have a dam that can't, you know, is structurally not sound. Uh, there's housing perhaps too close to the water in some cases. We have uh, ballparks being built near the water. I mean, what are how, how are all these considerations being factored in, or are they? They're not by a lot of people, but I interviewed Hank Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury, former head of Goldman Sachs, and he says climate change is the biggest economic risk we face. This is the man who's helped save the economy during the big meltdown, and uh, at that point, you know, government could basically print money, bail out banks, bail out Detroit. They had tools to do it. When climate gets really unstable, those people, they don't have the tools to save the day the same way. Um, and so that's something that really concerns Hank Paulson. Uh, you saw recently uh, Jim Baker, Hank Paulson, Rob Walton from Walmart. They came forward with a proposal to say we have to price carbon, have a carbon fee and dividend, tax carbon, give it back to Americans. You get a dividend check every month. 60% of Americans will get more than they pay into it. That's a pretty reasonable proposal. I know we're talking about policy proposals today. That's one thing to, to keep an eye out for. It's also a huge opportunity, as I said. Climate change is a big opportunity. Uh, the green energy jobs, sea level rise, we're not dealing with it here in the Bay Area. Um, look at Mission Bay. Look how many billions of dollars have been sunk into property in Mission Bay. And there's really been no thought. That was planned 20, 30 years ago. We didn't think about sea level rise. That Warriors Stadium, you know, what's the plan for that? I would look to Hunter's, Island, uh, Hunter's Point, Treasure Island, Mission Rock. They're going to be up 55 inches. They're, they're thinking about sea level rise right now. Uh, and that, that's built into what they're doing. Ted, you were nodding when he said that the biggest, one of the biggest threats is climate change. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> but I think that there is reason for optimism in the Bay Area. One of the things Greg, you know, words Greg said that I focused on is innovation. Uh, innovation is the thing that makes the Bay Area uh, able to succeed despite the regulation and the high costs of being here. It's also, uh, 
you know, a source of the, the value of a lot of the companies. So people here are willing to try new things, they're willing to invest in new things, we like to lead in solutions, and, and there's definitely a symbiosis between how successful we are economically and our ability to pay for the things that we're gonna need to pay for for the long term. If you talk about sea level rise, Mission Bay is, is you're scratching the surface, right? Because there's downtown San Francisco and the Embarcadero floods now uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in storms. So we're going to need mitigation in the Bay Area in the next uh, 30, 40, 50 years, it's going to be very expensive. What does and, that mitigation look like? Well, Seawalls? It, it could be things like that. You'd have to talk to somebody who's not an economist who knows that stuff. But I, I'm just thinking about the pros and cons. And the only point I'm making is if you have a successful economy, you can, and you have a commitment and an awareness of these issues, you can, um, you can afford to make the investments you need to for the long term. One idea that I've heard that would be relevant to this group is this, I've heard numbers uh, from uh, Patrick Odellini, about $4 billion to do the seawall in, in, in San Francisco. It's not seismically sound, and then you have to think about how high to rise it. There's been a proposal to put, to lease new property around the Embarcadero. So new buildings in front of the piers. Now, that would freak people out, but think about the potential for that revenue to then fund the kind of things that we need to do. Uh, these are the kinds of really hard choices. Some people in this audience might see real opportunity in that. Other people, you know, imagine the, the wall, the, the, the whole wall thing. Two words, A Washington. Yeah, eight Washington, right? What a big battle that was. But these are the kind, what's the choice? Where's that $4 billion gonna come from to retrofit that, that seawall unless we create some new property? If we were Hong Kong, we'd create new property and sell it and get the money from that to do the things we need to do. Matt, how big a uh, concern is that of Bay Area uh, companies? Um, at, at the Bay Area Council, we have an economic institute that produces a lot of paper, a lot of reports, interesting data. Um, I hope it's recycled. Yeah, it's all, yeah. Now, now that we don't print them anymore, they're all downloadable, B-A-C-E-I.org, plug. Um, but we produced a report a number of years ago called Surviving the Storm, and it was the economic impacts that a mega storm event, an ap atmospheric river combined with a king tide and a few other things, what, what economic damage that would cause to the Bay Area, and I think it was some we're in the realm of $10 billion. Um, in response to that report, we put the first nine-county initiative on the ballot in June of last year. I don't know if, if I should mention this in a room full of commercial real estate people, but it was a parcel tax. Um, but it was a $12 per parcel tax, so you all with the large campuses paid the same as me and my small home. Um, and it was to uh, fund uh, green and gray hardening around the bay. So it was to fund saltwater marsh reclamation projects as well as the, the the, the concrete walls around infrastructure. Um, and we, we talk to a lot of folks in your business who, who have large corporate campuses, uh, particularly in the South Bay, which is a, a critical risk uh, given a lot of that whole areas below sea level. And folks are saying, well, we have a levy or we're, we're you know, we've, our, our campus is built at you know, 18 feet above sea level, we're good. And I says, well, how are your employees gonna get to work? Because 101's mostly below sea level. And when they get there, if they manage to get there on a ferry, uh, how are they going to flush the toilet because the, the water treatment plant's below sea level? So, you know, you, you can't operate your company on an island. And um, so it, all of these things need to be taken into consideration. And it, it is something we need to plan for. And, um, you know, and it, I, I think some of, and I'll get, I see Scott raising his microphone. I'm, I'm going to be cut off here. But I, I think. Uh, 
some of our environmental policies need to change around CEQA uh, and around housing policies and a lot of other things that are um, antithetical to our, our climate change objectives and uh, I, I think those absolutely need to be addressed. Ted, coming back to housing, affordable housing and otherwise, uh, what, how does the city, where does the city see the big untapped opportunities for building housing if, if there are any? Well, the city, uh, and you know, Senator Weiner wasn't uh, quite as pointed as he could have been about this, uh, is actually a leader in the Bay Area in producing housing at all levels. Uh, we're way above our, our arena needs for market rate housing, and we're pretty good in our low income uh, housing needs. Um, <clears throat> where are the opportunities? This has to do with something that I think we're going to get into, which is what the federal government is, uh, has in store for us uh, in the next four years. San Francisco uh, is reconsidering how to do its inclusionary housing policy. This is something that, you know, frankly, we've gone back and forth a little bit over Just the past few years. Is this is uh, uh, the amount of affordable housing that you require market rate housing developers to build uh, as part of their project. And uh, we passed a ballot measure last year, which, which some felt was too onerous on developers. My office was asked to do a study of that. We released the report uh, this week that suggests lowering that. And that's going to be uh, from, a policy from, debate. From what to what? From 25%, which the voters improved, down to in the 14 to 20 range. And the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor's Office are going to be hashing through that in the next few months. Um, uh, the city is has planned and has a rather robust housing pipeline of about 40 to 50,000 units that are really just waiting for the timing to right be building it. We're building housing at, at really historic levels by San Francisco standards, about 4,000 housing units a year. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is, you know, that's 1% of our housing stock in San Francisco. And the population's gone up by, what, 100 and something? <laughs> the, the population is demand and income is demand. You know, demand may grow 8 to 10% a year and we're growing as fast as we can and the supply is 1% a year so that's where the price pressure is always coming from. You talk Matt about Jamba Juice being a canary in the coal mine. Um, what about school teachers and you know <laughs> folks who work in the city? I mean are we hearing for example from the school district yet that they're having a hard time getting teachers to work here? Well I, I think I saw a statistic um, earlier this year. I think San Francisco Unified pays the highest in the state for first-year teachers, I think it's something like $70,000. And they had 170 vacancies halfway through the, 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 the year last year. The teachers that just can't live here. It's, it's physically impossible for, for uh, people making that kind of money to live, not just in San Francisco, but anywhere in the inner Bay Area. Um, I, I sit on ABAG, the Association of Bay Area, government's uh, regional planning committee, so I'm sort of privy to a bunch of wonky statistics. 170,000 people a day drive into the Bay Area, most of them over the Altamont Pass, to their jobs here. We're building all of our affordable housing in Lathrop and in Manteca and in Tracy, where you can build a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, single-family stick-frame home for $300,000 and sell it for three hundred and fifty, dollars and do it in 12 months. Uh, he tried doing that in San Francisco. So that's where our teachers are living and that's where our retail workers are living. And again, going back to our climate policies, uh, and not just the Altamont Pass, we export as a state, California exports 70,000 people a year to one state, Texas. And they're mostly people making less than $50,000 a year. And as soon as they park the U-Haul in the driveway of their new three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in suburban Houston, their per capita greenhouse gas production goes from nine tons to 26 tons. 
So when we have very progressive uh, environmental regulations that add to the costs of housing, like Title 24 and CEQA and mandatory rooftop solar, all adding to the cost of housing, we're just exporting more people to other states where they create more carbon. So that's what is going back to my earlier point. We need to have progressive environmental policies, but we need to do it in a way that allows people to live here too. Great. On the affordability of teachers, there's an innovation. I heard about a startup called Landed, <clears throat> which is, uh, have you heard about that? Yeah, I mean, I so it's like the idea that you can make a, an investment. It's not a donation, but you get a below market rate return, and that goes into a fund that I believe you know, is, allows teachers to get into housing. So it's, it's a, a financing innovation for people who try to help teachers live here rather than on the other side of the Altamont Pass. To do what, like subsidize their rent or what? I, they, it helps teachers with a, uh, it, it helps them raise the down payment. You know, the average down payment right now required in the Bay Area is $200,000. Not many teachers have that lying around. But just in terms of the politics, Cupertino School District set aside land, unused school land last year for teacher housing. And they wanted to build 70 units of housing for teacher and faculty staff within the Cupertino School District. The neighbors organized and killed the project. <laughs> I mean, so that's, it's not just can we afford to build it, can we find the money to build it, can we get the political will to get it passed. So if cities want to allow teacher housing, because NIMBYism is so ingrained in a lot of the communities that uh, uh, surround the Bay, it, it's, it, we're, we, we need, as Senator Weiner said, we need some action at the state level to bring the hammer down on these NIMBY communities to say enough's enough. Yeah, I mean, just to focus on that point, Matt, I, I'm all, uh, I understand the, the cost to building housing that regulation adds, but if the neighbors want to let you build it anyway, why not add, you know, why not make the stuff you're allowed to build as green as possible and as sustainable as possible? It does come back to this basic idea of we set the planning rules for the Bay Area when we weren't expecting to grow, when we imagined that, you know, 40 years ago that the Bay Area is gonna, to, to, was going to kind of look like uh, Santa Cruz, you know, a place that wasn't going to change a lot. We've seen unbelievable change since then, and we really have to, as a region, wrap our head around the idea that what we imagined our cities always looking like are not working for the people who need to move to them and move around in them and, uh, and work in them today. You know, each of you have, has mentioned, you know, barriers to affordable housing, whether it's uh, cost uh, or regulation or CEQA, um, you know, just uh, NIMBYism, whatever. And it seems like there's always, there are always interest groups to kill a proposal, whether it's a real estate transfer tax or a CEQA reform, whatever it is. So how, how do you get everybody in a room or to, and get them to kind of give something up, or is that just pie in the sky? It's hard because it's hard to organize the winners from more housing. I mean, I can write a report that says, geez, if you expand 10,000 more housing units, everybody who looks for housing is going to pay 1% less for housing. And, and that's actually, when you add it all up, that's a pretty big windfall. And by any reasonable measure of the costs and benefits, that benefit exceeds the cost. But you can't find those 10,000 people and get them all to sign a petition or show up at a meeting. But the 50 people who's going to be affected by congestion in their neighborhood or their shade or whatever, they know about it and they'll be there. So that's the basic problem of it. it. Sounds like we're screwed. <laughs> 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 I 
right? I mean, how if, do you get around it? If there were any easy answers, easy solutions, we'd have done them already. I mean, everything from here on out is, is trench warfare. Um, and it's going to be, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust to, 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 to get any kind of progress. We sponsored a bill last year, um, AB 1069, which I think has some potential to add a lot of new units. Um, it basically allows homeowners to build accessory dwelling units or granny flats within single family home lots. Um, the League of Cities fought us on that because um, they saw, saw it as an attack on local control. Um, San Francisco supported us, Oakland, LA, the big cities was primarily the small suburban communities that opposed it. But we have data and, and done some research that shows if just 10% of single family homeowners in the Bay Area uh, built an ADU, that's 150,000 units of affordable housing with no public subsidy. And they can be done relatively quickly. They don't require public review. They're done by right. Um, so that's one opportunity to bring a lot of, of new housing um, into the market in a relatively short time. Uh, Ted, you're smirking. I think it's a great idea, actually. I'm, uh, um, I'm not, no, I'm not smirking. I mean, I think you, every, you know, what Supervisor Wiener was talking about in terms of adding a little bit of stick as well as carrot around the Wiener regulations and encouraging cities that aren't meeting their goals to meet them is great. I, I think just starting to create a dynamic that says we need to build more housing. Another point that the senator made that I don't think people, it sunk in with enough people is you cannot subsidize your way out of it. People often say to me, well, we can't build our way out of it. Arguably, that would be challenging and you would, you would run into opposition. You literally cannot subsidize your way out of it. You cannot give enough money or enough subsidized units to all the teachers to solve the problem that you're talking about. You could do it, as one of you said earlier, Greg, maybe, about building go high on near the waterfront, right? I mean, Vancouver's done that, uh, other cities. You would need to basically confront something that California has, has traditionally been very reluctant to do compared to places in other parts of the country, and that's redevelop stuff after it's been developed once. If you look at how many buildings in California are like second generation buildings, they're really not that many. There are a lot in downtown San Francisco, but in most places, once you're built out in a certain way, you're really not gonna turn you know, single family places and get densified and to, to become apartments in places like that. What, that doesn't happen on a large scale. It's because uh, we have a very strong tradition of local control. We have 100 local governments, city governments uh, in the Bay Area, each of which has absolute uh, under the California Constitution, a great deal of authority over their own land use decisions. They are largely set up to be the same way they always were, and that's where the laws come from, the community opposition against changing them comes from, and the tension between the state and the local governments come from. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, or alluded to, the, the Trump administration, and there's a lot of unknowns, and if anybody Happened to see that press conference today. Uh, there, there's, there were a few more unknowns after watching that. Uh, but the big target, two big targets on our back, really, are the Affordable Care Act. California gets about $15 billion a year for health care from the federal government and sanctuary cities. Trump is threatening to target cities like San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose that have sanctuary cities. How, how is San Francisco thinking about that? Well, San Francisco gets over a billion dollars a year from the federal government, and about 80% of that is for healthcare and is tied up with the fate of the ACA, and the other 20% is sort of uh, grants and other sources of federal funding. Let me just stop you there. So, but, uh, 
did that go up that much after the ACA was passed, or did we already get it? No, no, you- that includes Medicaid, which has been there for a while. So that's not new money. Um, but it is very unclear what happens after the ACA and the, and the sort of interlocking funding relationships between the federal government, the state, and the city. Um, and so it is, it is very much a big unknown insofar as how, what ACA reform will look like and what that means for us as a city. The joke making the rounds in Washington is that they're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with the Affordable Care Act. That would be great. <laughs> um, what about, uh, I mean, Sanctuary City, uh, you said the city gets about a billion dollars. Yes. However, only about, I think, 30 million or so is actually uh, goes to law enforcement, criminal justice sorts of programs. And the Supreme Court seems to say, has said that's, you can't take all the money away. You can only take the money away that's related to the policy you're concerned about. Um, Well, the city has sued Donald Trump over this executive order that is threatening us over sanctuary cities. Um, and there's a number of legal issues in there, including a lot of funding. It, you know, his, The executive order is sufficiently ambiguous that we don't know exactly what would be threatened. Our view is that the city is complying with federal law, and there is no basis on which to um, uh, threaten any of our funding. So that's something that, that, that is going to be litigated. Um, for, and for a number of reasons, not just financial reasons, it's something very important as yeah. a city. Matt, how uh, how dependent are businesses in the Bay Area on it, not just immigrant labor, but undocumented immigrant labor? Um, well, certainly the, the technology community is, is heavily reliant on um, H-1B visa uh, labor. Um, and those are not immigrants, though, right? Uh, well, many of them are. Um, you're talking about tech talent coming from overseas who are on, on these visas um, who are... But they have to go back, don't they? They do, they? yeah. But I mean, but many of them stay, become citizens through other vehicles and start companies. Um, and um, I, you know, th- there's been some rhetoric from, certainly from campaign Donald Trump, that these, these are jobs that are being taken away from Americans. And it's absolutely blatantly false. I mean, there are, our universities are not producing engineering PhDs at the levels that our tech companies and other companies need them, so that these companies have to look overseas to, to, to uh, overseas university graduates and bring them here to, to keep this economy going. And the, the economic research is, is very clear that these um, uh, overseas uh, uh, tech workers create more jobs than they take by orders of magnitude. So, um, you know, we've certainly been having uh, early conversations with um, some folks within the administration and close to the administration that um, that the, these these jobs are are critical to keep uh, this economy going. I mean, the, the, the president said he wants 4% GDP growth um, by the time he leaves office. The only place in the country that has 4% GDP growth is here, and we have all of those visa holders that he wants to get rid of. So, um, you know, we're trying to talk a little sense and, and show some data and, and, and hopefully uh, prevent any really bad decisions being made, you know, to, to you know, for... I would agree. Just to jump in, the H-1B issue is a very big issue for the city as well, but we, you're absolutely right, Scott, that we can't talk about industries like tourism in San Francisco or construction industry without highlighting the role of undocumented labor. I mean, one of the reasons, as Matt alluded to, that we have a kind of hourglass city with lots of 
high-income people and a lot of low-income people and no middle-income people is it's too expensive for middle-income people to live here. Well, why then do low-income people move here? And the answer is because they're immigrants and even struggling for housing at low wages in San Francisco is better than um, the economic circumstances where they found themselves before. And if you crack down on that, and again, they're not all undocumented, and that's, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it is, a, it is a major economic threat to a big piece of our economy. We're going to give you a chance to ask questions in just a couple of minutes, so uh, be thinking of those. We'll have somebody with a microphone uh, walk around and just put your hand up at the, at the right time. Um, what about uh, you know, another issue that Donald Trump has uh, rode into office on is trade. Uh, he's uh, rescinded uh, the, trans, the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, he's threatening to rip up NAFTA. Um, anyone want to tackle that one in terms of what's at stake for the Bay Area? I'll take a shot. We were very big proponents of the Bay Area Council of TPP. Um, we have, I think, have four offices in, in China, and we operate the state of California's trade office in China as well. Um, trade is mission critical for you know the Bay Area's economy and for for California's economy, um, and w without it, we're you know we're we're certainly any, not anywhere close to the the sixth largest economy in the world, as Senator Weiner pointed out earlier. Um, and it's it, again, it, it's a matter of of trying to get past sort of blunt political rhetoric and explain to people um, uh, in in the Midwest that trade is not the reason why you don't have a job in the VCR factory anymore. Um, other things are at play, um, and uh, and the trade is actually beneficial to to this country's economy. And um, um, you know, I think TPP's dead. Um, and um, you know, it would be certainly our sincere hope that uh, we can we can protect some of the other trade agreements that we have. I mean, just ask folks in the UK um, what they think you know about Brexit and trying to renegotiate individual trade agreements with every country in the world and being at the back of the queue because um, they like to queue in the UK, and um, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot of consternation. One thing that's related also, he criticized the Paris climate deal, which similarly, a lot of the large corporations supported the Paris climate deal. Uh, before the Paris climate summit, IBM and, and Caterpillar and General Motors and Disney and Coca-Cola, they were at the White House and signed on in support of the climate deal because they're global companies. They see the need for some certainty rather than a patchwork of policies around climate. And he's out of sync, which is this strange thing where uh, the current uh, Republican administration is out of sync with corporate America, one of their, their cornerstone supporters. And we really have one party in one country that's really opposing this global consensus that climate is something that needs to be addressed. And whether maybe the US will back out, maybe the US will stay in and they won't fund it. But I think a lot of the companies and certainly the cities and regions are going to continue and support what Paris put in place. Why don't we open it up to you folks? Uh, I think we need to get one of these microphones. So yeah, there you go, Ted, maybe you can share with Matt. Um, if you have a question for anyone or a comment, just put your hand up and we will come to you with a microphone. Julia, <laughs> get things rolling. I have a burning question. So where do you see um, companies' responsibility in some of these policies? You know, you, we see the, the you know, the, um, the, the Google buses and you know, uh, the Apple buses going down to Silicon Valley. You see Google building housing. You know there are companies building hotels. There's there's like this demand for other services that uh, maybe aren't being supported 
um, from, a, from a policy standpoint. So where do you see the responsibility from, for companies versus um, public policy? Matt? Um, well, you know, most of the large employers in the Bay Area are members of the Bay Area Council. Half of your sponsors and probably half of you work for Bay Area Council members. Um, and you know, it's really our job to, to involve the, the corporate community in these policy conversations. I mean, I personally negotiated the deal with the tech uh, uh, shuttle buses and, and uh, SFMTA and the Board of Supervisors to make sure that they continue to run um, up and down you know, the peninsula and take you know, you know, millions of cars off the street every year and vehicle miles traveled. That's good environmental policy. It's good uh, economic policy. But c companies can, can definitely do more. And, and it's, it's um, you know, we're seeing attacks from, um, and I won't name groups, but groups who are uh, not business friendly, who think that um, the way to solve our housing crisis is to subsidize our way out of it and to do it through commercial linkage fees and taxes on business and to have businesses actually build housing for their employees. Now, I, I, I didn't live in, in Pennsylvania in 1850, but you know, I've read some history books and living in a company town was not a lot of fun. You know, losing your job, losing your health care, and losing your housing all in one day is a tough day. So we've, we've tried that social experiment and it didn't work. Um, so you know, I think we've, we've developed a model where employers create jobs and cities approve housing for those employees and home builders build them. That model works somewhat better and um, we just have a way of mucking it up here in the Bay Area by cities not approving it and letting home builders build them. Um, we have to unmuck that and it's the, the employer community and the business community has to get more involved and, and otherwise they will do what employers do in search of you know, higher returns. They will leave and we, we don't have to be. Um, we had a meeting, a board meeting at Facebook recently and a senior executive at Facebook said Silicon Valley is always going to exist. It just doesn't have to exist here forever. And, and that's, a, that's a very troubling thing for a senior Silicon Valley executive to say. Was and that a threat? Or, you know, what, no, it was, was just a, it was just a, a basic uh, understanding of the region's economy. They're bumping into uh, an inability to attract the right kind of talent to come here and work. And, um, and it's, you know, if you can't attract people at $200,000 a year because they're looking at the sticker shock of you know, an average home price in the South Bay of a million and a half dollars, they're going to go, you know what, I'd rather work for a company in, in Austin, Texas, or in Raleigh, uh, Durham, North Carolina for half what you're offering me to pay, but my living costs will be a fraction. Um, you know, and that's what these companies are running into. And if they can't, companies have to grow. There's a mentality out there among some uh, elected officials and organizations that we've grown enough and we just need to stop. Let's just put a cap on this and everything's great and we'll just leave it as is. Companies don't exist in that kind of world. They have to grow, they have to show increased returns, and if they can't grow, they'll go somewhere else. Other questions? Oh, you were yawning. Sorry, I thought you had a question. Um, uh, no, no questions? Wow. Oh, there's one back there. We're recording. We're recording, so we need the mic. Matt, thanks for speaking. You had some pretty neat kind of statistics, and you said you kind of go all over the place for where you get it. You made a couple mentions of websites. Where do you typically find a lot of your information that's just be good reference for us. There's some, if, if housing is your, your you know, policy nerd subject of, of, of interest, um, there's two great websites to go to. Um, the Legislative Analyst's Office in Sacramento, lao.ca.gov, um, has produced in the last couple of years two of the, probably the most um, widely read and, and influential documents on, on housing in California, what's driving the costs, what are the political problems, what the potential solutions are. Um, it's 120 billion dollar subsidy
affordability problem, uh, according to their numbers. Um, and then there's a new report from HCD, Housing and Community Development, um, that was pro uh, uh, published late last year. Um, that's another state agency um, that's responsible for the aforementioned RENA numbers. That's a very good housing study. And then Bay Area Council uh, Economic Institute, BACEI.org. We've produced several uh, reports on housing and other things in, in the re in recent months. One that I would, that I think maybe Greg has probably read, is called Another Inconvenient Truth, um, which shows that we, we can't meet our climate change objectives in the Bay Area, our SB uh, 32 and AB 32 greenhouse gas reduction goals, unless we take all those people out of the cars driving from Manteca and house them here. So a lot of you know good, good reports there as well to take a look at. Anybody else want to share good sources, websites? No? Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I have a question. It's, um, if you don't mind, just say your name and you know what uh, your affiliation is, if you don't uh, mind. Jay Scholl. I'm with CBRE uh, here in San Francisco. Uh, I have a question about density, and I actually have two questions uh, with density as the theme. Uh, one is that we have a variety of transit-oriented development sites throughout the barrier that seem like they're no-brainers to create high-density solutions and lots of units, and yet there's the same amount of friction in those areas as there is right across the board in the barrier. So is there a way to streamline that process just to TODs? Um, it's question number one. Question number two, in terms of density, um, why can't we embrace the eastern sort of bay shore from Hunters Point to Mission Bay and build a Vancouver-style sort of dense housing sort of supply there? I don't think anybody's sort of complaining about losing their view to Hayward. Um, and so the city... Oh, you'd be surprised. Just wait. <laughs> the, the, city, the city seems to me to be lacking some vision in terms of actually taking sort of a more robust, sort of vigorous stand about creating a hell of a lot more units in a lot quicker period of time. Should, should I take the regional one, Ted, and you do the city one? Take the Hayward question. <laughs> There are, there are a number of major impediments to achieving the goal that you, you describe of density around, particularly around transit. So we have a law in California called SB 375. It's the land use, I'm cutting it in and out here, I think. It's the land use component of AB 32. We're supposed to reduce vehicle miles traveled uh, in order to get to our uh, greenhouse gas reduction targets. 40% of our GHGs in the Bay Area come from cars stuck in traffic. Um, the problem with that law is that, we, well, in response to that law, the Bay Area created a, a sustainable community strategy called Plan Bay Area. We're supposed to focus 80% of our growth and 20% of our land masses. Cities applied to be priority development areas and took planning grants to, to become those. Uh, and then a lot of cities then refused to permit uh, plan compliant projects, but that's another story. But that law is in direct conflict with some other state and federal laws. RENA, for example, says that every city in the region has to build its share of the housing cost, uh, the housing burden. That doesn't jive with focusing 20% or 80% of growth and 20% of the, of the land mass. And then it, it doubly doesn't jive with Fair Housing Act law from at the federal government, which says that um, affordable housing and low-income housing has to be equally spread throughout the whole community. Now, I, 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 that's been a sort of a, 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 a holy grail for po poverty advocates for years. But they also say that, oh, you know, the uh, opportunity sites for housing around transit are, are great for low-income communities and families because that gives them upward mobility op opportunities. But it, again, that doesn't jive with, you know, having to, Atherton and Woodside and Palo Alto having to build affordable housing. Um, or, you know, inclusionary units at the, in the 85th floor of the Millennium Tower. I mean, it, putting, putting a, a, a low-income family there makes no sense whatsoever. So we've got 
and all sorts of conflicting policies to start with. And then the politics on top of that make it, you know, you look at Brisbane, that has got a high-speed rail station going in there, and it's got all sorts of infrastructure. 1,600 homes in the city of Brisbane standing in the way of one of our biggest opportunities for development in the region and saying San Francisco can build our housing. We want 8 million square feet of, of commercial and, and no housing units there. It makes So it's, it's politics and competing policies and all of the aforementioned stuff around labor unions and environmentalists and CEQA, and it's just really hard. <laughs> Another question? About number two of my question, Vancouver, oh. Eastern Bayshore, city's lack of vision. Well, I will say that San Francisco did a, a long-term community planning process for the eastern half of the city that concluded about 10 years ago and results will result in the construction of about 25,000, I think, new homes in that section of the city, which already was developed. So that's an awful lot of redevelopment taking place outside of redevelopment areas. In addition to that, um, there is all the redevelopment taking place at Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, the new housing that's going into Mission Bay in that part of the city. We're also reconstructing entirely the public housing projects in Petrero Hill and in Sunnydale which are dramatically increasing by about 50% the total amount of housing there. Um, so you could look and say, well, it's not Vancouver and it's not high rises, but we did a community planning process that, that led to the construction of a lot of new housing in that part of San Francisco. If you look to other parts of the Bay Area, um, perhaps their views might be threatened by more housing or perhaps not, but it, I, I think we'd be a lot further down the road if every community in the Bay Area made the kind of efforts to build new housing that's San Francisco has. How, how big of a uh, problem has the loss of redevelopment agencies been? From a city point of view, uh, I think people would say that it's absolutely critical. Um, it was a, uh, a, a relatively streamlined way to get it done, and it had a state subsidy to it that made it very much sweeter for local governments and for communities to swallow. Now, of course, that was the source of the tension at the state level, and they sort of made the argument that why would we subsidize development in one part of the state if it would have just gone to another part of the state? But from a city point of view, um, we miss it greatly. We've been anticipating the long-promised replacement for redevelopment, and it seems like we're still waiting for it. Some Scott, can I yeah, add a little, please, a little yeah. some more nerdish data to, to redevelopment? Because uh, I, I chair my own little small communities redevelopment successor agency. But um, in terms of affordable housing, affordable housing advocates and a lot of the labor unions are, are clamoring to bring back redevelopment, and they're blaming the loss of redevelopment for the, the affordable housing crisis in California. But to give you some perspective, afford, there, there are two housing crises that are talked about in California, and we often conflate the two to our uh, disservice. Um, there's the the crisis being felt by affordable, affordable housing developers and the lack of funding that they're, uh, that they're experiencing. And then there's the general affordable housing crisis that uh, I'll, I'll get into. So affordable housing developers build 4% of housing in California. So if our response is to let's bring back redevelopment and the billion dollars that they lost um, when redevelopment was taken away, that'll solve the problem. And that, a lot of people in Sacramento actually believe that. A lot of the, the, the housing legislation in our state capital is to fully fund affordable housing developers so that they can get from 4% back up to 5%. That's not going to solve the problem. And a billion dollars is not going to... 
two counties in the Bay Area passed affordable housing bonds in November. Um, $1.3 billion in Santa Clara and $790 million in Alameda. And neither of those counties believe that that money is going to solve their uh, uh, housing problems. So a billion dollars across the state of California is just a drop in the ocean. So redevelopment had, had a lot of advantages for eminent domain and planning and things of that nature, but the, the loss of money, particularly for affordable housing, is, is marginal at best. Other questions? Scott, I have a question, yeah. Barry Turner. Yeah. <clears throat> Matt, as we got ready for this meeting, we talked about the things that our members might be interested in. You mentioned something that uh, didn't ring any bells for me. You talked about the split role policy change potential. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I've been wondering if you to bring that up. Yeah, okay, sure. Well, as you probably all know, in the mid-70s, California passed Prop 13, which I think probably has precipitated a lot of the problems that we're talking about today, um, cap on, on property taxes. Um, and there's been a lot of, of conversation about how best do we reform Prop 13 so we can get funding for roads and schools and everything else that the state needs. Um, you know, since the passage of Prop 13, California has moved away from a property tax-based system to a a very volatile income-based, income tax-based system where the vast majority of our state's taxes come from the top 1% of earners, and that's a very volatile tax base, and it, it leads to the boom and bust cycles that we have in Sacramento uh, it, from a budget perspective. So folks are looking at, well, uh, let's, let's reassess, let's peel commercial property out of the, out of the uh, protection blanket uh, of Prop 13 and start reassessing commercial properties at, uh, at, at today's uh, assessment values. Um, you know, I, 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 I personally am in favor of just blowing up Prop 13 altogether and pulling everybody out. I think throwing just commercial uh, uh, property owners off the, the ship um, just further um, uh, it th further distills our, um, our, our tax, tax base into smaller and smaller uh, uh, groups of people. So I, I think if we're going to reform Prop 13, we have to do it. Everybody has to be involved homeowners and commercial property owners as well. That's a winning campaign. Yeah, right. <laughs> what are the, the yeah. politics of that when people, there's an affordability crisis already? I remember many people were here during Prop 13, but grandmothers getting priced out of their homes because the property tax went up. I mean, that's a tough sell politically, and so is split role in Sacramento where the commercial real estate industry holds lots of sway. That's why it hasn't happened yet. Any other questions? I have a question. Yep. Um, going back to the infrastructure things that um, Senator Weiner was talking about, I'm sorry to say that I don't know how much of our sort of Caltrans or road um, projects are also co-funded by Department of Transportation or basically the federal government. And <clears throat> my question is I wonder if we are in threat of getting frozen out by uh, Washington because they don't like just California in general. Already you've seen a proposal to go after Caltrain electrification, which is really a shot at the high-speed rail, which I think that's sort of paving the way for. If you notice during the Oroville Dam, usually when there's a natural emergency crisis in the country, the president runs to the television cameras and says, we're with you, the government's on the way. That didn't happen this time. We didn't hear from Washington saying we're going to help. I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to his vindictiveness. We talked to a congressman who will be unnamed from that area, uh, and he said that he, they were tweeting at the president trying to get his attention. Couldn't get his attention. So I don't, I just, I think it's another problem, but. Yeah, I, I think if you look historically, if you go back 
15, 20 years, the federal government funded about 70% of all major transportation projects across the country, and 30% was local. That number has flipped. Today, it's 30% uh, federal and 70% local. We've become much more self-reliant in terms of transportation. And that goes back to what Senator Weiner was saying about the gas tax being frozen at 1993 levels. Made a big mistake back then on making it a percentage rather than a uh, per unit or, or, or uh, a consumption-based uh, uh, gas tax. So, um, you know, we're, I don't see that changing much under the Trump administration. We might lose some discretionary funds out of out of malice, but um, um, you know, he has made a big commitment um, to funding infrastructure. I think you might see some imaginative sort of P3 type funding uh, efforts to do that. Uh, personally, I think repatriation of foreign earnings and bringing allowing companies to bring back offshore uh, 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 money that's in places like Ireland, where I'm from, and bringing it back here to reduce tax rate, provided they park some of it in an infrastructure bank and use it for building roads and dams and, and railway and all of that stuff. And I think California is probably going to benefit a lot from that because most of the offshore funds are from California companies and we might be able to get a little extra out of that. There's an author at the Brookings Institution named Bruce Katz who wrote a book called Metro Revolution which talks about regions being the economic engines of the global economy. And he says the federal government has left the building. The regions have to figure out how to fund their infrastructure themselves. The days of Nancy Pelosi delivering a billion dollar central subway, those sorts of things, not going to happen. So it's like Measure AA, where we tax ourselves to come up with the money, $4 billion for a seawall in San Francisco, a billion dollars to elevate Highway 37, because that's going to flood all the people who go to their play uh, golf or to the vineyards, a billion dollars just to fix Highway 37. Think about all the other roads around the Bay Area that will be challenged by climate change. We're going to pay for that, not Uncle Sam. Yeah, I'd just like to add that we're not anticipating withdrawal of federal funds for anything that have been committed for any of the projects we paid for. The Doyle Drive project was one that was since, since the Central Subway completed with a lot of federal money. Uh, it's generally true that the politics at the federal level of investing in urban infrastructure are not what they used to be and frankly not what they should be for the best interest of the economy of the United States. Uh, but we don't expect the president's uh, attitude towards anyone to sort of lead to a crisis. I do think, however, that what he said about infrastructure spending and the, the trillion dollars they're talking about will probably not benefit us very much. It is basically talking about tax credits that in the first place may wind up subsidizing projects that are going to happen anyway and we're a use of money, but also will benefit the places where there is a lot stronger P3 kind of tradition than there is in the Bay Area. Well, I think it's time for cocktails. Uh, so I want to thank all three of you, Ted Egan, Matt Regan, and Greg Dalton very much. And thanks to you as well. I hope everyone enjoyed that podcast as much as we did. Please send any comments that you have our way so that we can incorporate them into the next podcast. As always, please share this on social media with your colleagues and friends. And I wanted to let everyone know that we are also now on iTunes. So please feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes or listen to us wherever you download your podcasts. Happy listening.